Here we go, here we go, here we go. Fold your hands, close your eyes. Stand still where you are, here we go. Margaret, where are you going? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. All right, thanks for coming out. Um, I think if we go three more times, we'll be all done. That puts you in a spot where you have to make a decision. Not really for Jesus, but you know, maybe St. John. So um, we'll try to get you the paperwork. Vic, you're looking for the paperwork, right? You're going to find the latest, best paperwork. Alternately, we have clear. You can retinal scan if you want to join. We do it that way, too, because we're very, very hip. All right, so um, hey, Patrick, I love you. We'll um, clean up a couple of things today, finish some things up, try to bundle everything up, and then get a clear trajectory going forward. So any questions just about your prayers? We've got a thing or two to think about with that. But uh, Vic, will you help me? Uh, uh, well, the Vicar gives you this. So there's all sorts of things, you know, uh, to think about prayer, but the most important thing is to just do it. We're coming into Ash Wednesday and Lent. So Sunday Bible study here We'll talk about the four great things, the three great things plus ashes. So ashes, alms, prayers, and fasting. If you haven't ever done any of those things before, uh, or sort of given them conscious thought, as if they were for somebody else, you might want to come along and see whether they might be for you. I've often um, interrupted my Bible study with a long bit on fasting at this time, but I'll do just a shorter bit, because for folks who have been here a long time, I don't want to always give them the same thing again and again. Nevertheless, for Lutherans, even for pastors, I find this to often be uncharted territory. So you can come Sunday um, at 10 if you want to sort of work through the disciplines and then get ready for Lent. We'll have ashes here in the morning at 7.40 and then also in the evening uh, at 7 o'clock. So if, you're, if, you, if either of those work for you, come along. Um, just anything about your prayers? You're all okay? So your prayers kind of work in different ways, right? You pray just simply because Jesus asks you to. That should be enough of a reason if you follow Jesus. But then there are some other possibilities uh, for folks who are, you know, a lost cause or in great danger who have wandered. You know, you pray for them and you, you carry them to Jesus. Or um, for people who are troubled or in rebellion or broken, or faithful and still broken, you know, your faith helps them. And I often think of your prayers, my prayers, as, you know, successive layers of paint or varnish or nail polish or protection. And so I'll, this is going to be on the front of the bulletin in a couple of weeks or always a few weeks ahead of these. And you can read it if you want. We've talked about most of this, about the demonic and temptation and stuff. But if you just look at the last paragraph, so turn it over to the back side, just the points that are specific to prayer, maybe the last two paragraphs. And you can read this if you want. This is really quite helpful in terms of thinking about your own prayers and own temptations. But the examples above are temptations directed toward people of prayer and virtue. So that's where the start is. So I'm talking to you now just as people who are in the church and believe in Jesus and want to be disciples. But then the last 
the very last paragraph, temptation is incompatible with prayer. So last week we had one of the quotes from the fathers who said, with your prayers, you undo the works of the devil. It's a beautiful thought. You know, the devil plants and you uproot the evil that he's sown. And then here again, temptation is incompatible with prayer. People often have great temptations and uh, you know, Jesus, first Sunday in Lent is always Jesus in the wilderness being tempted. <clears throat> so we'll talk about it a little bit that day in the sermon. But uh, one of the important things to know is temptation and prayer are incompatible. If one is tempted in praise, the temptation disappears. I mean, it's just that simple. Now, immediately, not always, even an exorcism isn't immediate, right? But eventually, the temptation disappears. And then this, prayer creates a barrier against temptation. And so I told you way back when we started a few weeks ago, my regular practice when I go with someone who's ill or troubled is to clear the room with prayer. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, or glory to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit. So temptation is incompatible with prayer. If one is tempted and prays, the temptation disappears. And then prayer creates this barrier against temptation. Since in our prayers, our intellects and wills are centered on God. And then this, great comfort. Eventually, a demon cannot resist this and leaves us alone. And that, of course, you'll see in Lent 1, where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And eventually, you know, the demon leaves him uh, in Luke's gospel to come back another day, of course. But this is also true for you. And so, you know, there are all sorts of reasons to say your prayers. And we struggle with it, but we get guilty about it. I wish we wouldn't, but it does in fact happen. But if you can imagine the good things that happen here, that your friends benefit by your prayers, uh, that your family is protected, that you yourself um, undo the works of Satan with your prayers, and you create, if you will, a shell, a hard shell around you and those whom you love with your prayers. If you begin to think this way, you welcome your prayers. And there, there'll be some point in your life where prayer will switch over from, um, I can't believe I have to spend three minutes with this, to I can't believe I've been here an hour. So at some point, now this happens in many, this is a common thing in many of the spiritual disciplines where they're so, uh, burdensome at the beginning and then at some point they take a life of their own in fact they kind of absorb your life the prayer absorbs your life right or the fasting absorbs your life where it stops being something that you've got to do and it becomes something that you get to do this great privilege so there's all sorts of ways to structure your prayer if you grab a catechism um, we'll do a little bit from the Lord's Prayer. There you go. Uh, but there's all sorts of ways to structure your prayer, but traditionally morning and evening, you know, that's all over the Old Testament. New Testament too, just morning and evening prayers. If you can wake to your prayers. Um, if you have kids, maybe even before you get out of bed or they get out of bed, because, you know, I know your life gets busy. 
or in the evening after people go to sleep, even though you probably want to go to sleep as well. But if you can find some time and uh, find a prayer book. Now, the bulletins on Sunday, the part of the reason there's always four or five prayers in there is that if you wanted to, you could take that home and make it your devotions for the week. There's always a prayer as you enter and then a prayer as you leave. There's a prayer on each side of the Lord's Supper. The collect is a prayer. The Lord's Prayer is there. And so, uh, and of course, the great prayers before the Eucharist. So there's, you know, four or five prayers. You wouldn't hurt yourself just by saying those. That would be sufficient. But the most important thing um, is it's binary. You know, the most important thing is just to pray. And don't worry so much about it. You know, find the name that works. Jesus, if you need to be forgiven. Father, if you need to be embraced. Holy Spirit, if you need to be energized. Find the, find the name that works and um, embrace the notion that whatever you pray in God's name will be given to you. And then as um, Saint Padre Pio says, um, pray and let God worry, right? So say your prayers and then uh, be done with it. You still okay? Anything about that? You're so docile. I think it's the way the Vic makes the coffee. It really is just all decaf. Okay. The Lord's Prayer in here is um, on page 19. If you, can, if you can turn to that, that would kind of get us going in the right direction. I at least want to alert you. Now, if you don't have a prayer, or if you don't have a prayer, if you don't have a catechism, you should take one home. Just take one. It's all good. And if you don't have a Bible, you should take one home too. But... Um, you know, what in the world is going on here? So, uh, 19. Our Father who art in heaven, what does this mean? With these words, God tenderly, right? And so, one of the great difficulties, even with Christians, is that they concentrate on the wrath of God, as if God is always out to get us. And of course, Lent is this 40-day reflection on nothing could be further from the truth. So God tenderly invites us to believe that he's our father and we're his children. So that with boldness and confidence, we ask him as dear children, ask their dear father. Now, what would you ask him? Hallowed be your name. What does this mean? God is holy, but we pray we'd be holy. And that happens when um, the word of God is taught in its truth and purity and we as children of God lead holy lives. Uh, and we don't live contrary to it. So we just welcome the holiness that God has to offer. And we often think of this holiness as a burden. That's because we're all bad. What you really discover is that holiness is uh, truth and joy. And holiness is to live in the image of Jesus. See, there's this click when you see that these things are a gift and a blessing as opposed to some sort of requirement and judgment. That God really is tender with you and he pulls you close and he loves you so. And he would show you how to stop wounding yourself and stop hurting the people who are around you. You see, this is uh, what this is the prayer is about. Your kingdom come and then the third petition, your will be done. Right? So this double thing of God would come to us, and when he comes to us, we would gladly let him have his way. 
So your kingdom come, what does this mean? You know, God will come, but we pray he'll come to us. So the kingdom comes when God gives us his Holy Spirit and grace to believe his word so that we live godly lives. See this holiness. So the Father comes to us, the Son comes to us, the Holy Spirit comes to us. And then the third petition, his will gets done. Of course, his will gets done without us, but we want to be in on it. Why suffer needlessly? Right? How does that work? When God breaks evil, and we of course pray for that all the time. Um, as you grow in this a bit, you probably want to have a list of things you pray against. Uh, you should be a bit more careful against, about praying against people. Although from on a probably a regular basis, you should pray against yourself. And that's sort of the full stretch of faith when you can pray against yourself. So um, remember earlier we talked about at the forgiveness point where I said Jesus doesn't have any enemies because, I mean, I'm sorry, Jesus doesn't have any enemies so I don't have any enemies and you don't have any enemies. Your only, your only enemy is, is Satan and his demons. Any human person, they're not your enemy. These are people whom God created and God loves and God still hopes to have near. So um, when you pray, even against a person who does great evil, you pray that the evil would be broken and the person would be saved. And the full stretch is when you pray that about yourself, that the evil in yourself, this is common when you go to confession and you say, these are the things that trouble me and then the the, the pastor says, you've made a good confession. And then um, you pray that your life would be marked by love and beauty, right? You pray against what was happening in yourself and you pray for the next thing. Well, here it is, right? We pray that it would come to us. We pray that we'd get his Holy Spirit. Uh, we pray that his will would be done. We pray that God would break evil. This is the top of page 21 and protect us, right? This is your successive prayers, creating this, this bubble around you and around those people you love. When God breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, which don't want us to live in holiness, not live in God's name. And when he strengthens us and keeps us firm in faith until we die, this is his good and gracious will. So you're praying that evil would be pushed away, that you'd be made strong, and even if the evil kills you, it's not the end. So you, you carry on. So the first half of the Lord's Prayer is quite, quite a lot about God descending to us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he gives you holiness. Now, um, that's good for your soul, but then also, you know, the bodily way of proceeding through life. Give us today our daily bread. What does this mean? God gives daily bread to everybody, even to the evil. You remember Jesus saying, the rain falls on the evil and the good. So God doesn't judge them harshly enough to destroy them, at least not often. But we pray that God would lead us to realize this and to thank him. So I'm always, you know, I'm a pastor and there's always this, if you have dinner with me, there's always this nervous point where whether we'll pray over the food, right? Even in a restaurant. 
you know, and now, you know, you can, you can stop the party by making the sign of the cross and praying over your food. It used to be in Wheaton that this was kind of de rigueur, but now it's, uh, you know, people look at you like, what's happening there? So, uh, you know, but you, you remember that everything you have comes from God. It's remarkable stuff. And just teaching your children to pray at meals, um, even to make the sign of the cross, right, as they do it, it's very nice. Daily bread's everything. Now this will be important when we um, have to, you know, when we, well, when we talk about money at some point, um, this will be important for you to remember kind of basic rule, which is you actually don't have anything. You're nothing but given to. You're always a steward. You're never an owner, right? Well, here it is in the Lord's Prayer. Daily bread includes everything. So everything comes from God. Whatever it takes to support you and your body, right? Whatever it takes to support you and your family, whatever it takes to support the government and whatever it takes for good weather, peace, health, self-control. You know, don't, don't make this um, sing and dance. It's 16th century, this is what our world looked like. But, you know, your world looks quite a lot like this as well, that we'd have devout and faithful rulers. I mean, what, what we wouldn't give, this is not a political statement, this is just observing the world, what we wouldn't give for a few devout and faithful leaders. Not just in America, everywhere. Be very, very nice. Um, so, you know, when we pray for daily bread, we pray that the world would spin on Christ's axis. And then forgive us and teach us to forgive. And so Jesus tells stories over and over about this, right? Where Jesus is very generous to people and then they refuse to be generous. The famous one where the, uh, the king, you know, forgives this man a lifetime of, of, of bad mistakes. And then he goes out and has a, has a, has a friend thrown in jail for a dollar. And the king then comes back to him and says, you never learned anything about mercy. But that we too would be merciful. We'd, we'd forgive with the same forgiveness we get. So the Lord forgives everything, and then we forgive everything. Now, that of course is not an excuse for going on to be a bum. When the Lord forgives me, um, he asked me to stop that. So we did the prodigal son story where the son tries to carry on just a little bit in his own life and the father hushes him and loves him and protects him and resurrects him. Has a party and they start over. That's the same way you treat other people. Luther has the phrase where he says, we're little Christ to each other. What does it mean, what does it mean to be a little Christ to each other? I mean, it first means to be merciful toward other people. It's very, it's, very, um, it's very difficult, but it was difficult for Jesus to go through Lent, too. So difficulty is part of the gig, but it's a good difficult, right? What does this mean? We pray that our Father in heaven won't look at our sins, that he wouldn't deny our prayers. We're not worthy for what we get. We don't deserve them, but he gives them to us by grace, even though we're bums. We're his bums. So we too will sincerely forgive and gladly do good to those who sin against us. Nice. So that's what it is to live in the image of Jesus. And then, this is terribly important, both of these, um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
So run away, run away, you Monty Python fans, run away. Just checking who watches things and what they watch. Okay, so, um, you know, run away from evil, and if it tracks me down, save me. You know, if you run into evil, in some way you're a bit on your own. I mean, the Lord will come for you, but it makes it much more difficult. So walk the other way. You remember we talked about this at the forgiveness point. Psalm 1, blesses the man, right? Blesses the man who what? Doesn't walk in the way of sinners. Doesn't stand in the, in the place of scoffers. Doesn't sit, right? Which is classic way that you do. You walk by something that's evil. You stop, you sit down, you embrace it. You're blessed if you don't do that. You're blessed if you keep walking. That's this, right? God doesn't tempt us, but there are temptations everywhere, right? Um, we pray that God would guard and keep us so the devil, the world, and our sinful nature doesn't deceive us or mislead us. Or Although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them, right? Say your prayers. Walk the other way. Don't sit down, don't touch. Touch holy things, don't touch evil things. When you touch an evil thing, you give it life. You have the power to resurrect things. When you tell a lie, you've put a new creation into the universe. When you touch something evil, it takes your own flesh. It incarnates in the world, it makes it worse. Make it better instead, right? So deliver us from evil. We pray in this petition, that our Father would rescue us from every evil of body and soul, possession, reputation. And finally, when our last hour comes, give us a blessed end and take us, to, take us from this sorrow to himself in heaven. So, um, keep us away from temptation, but if it tracks us down, come rescue us. That prayer is best prayed with a holy heart. Um, almost, well, so many of our wounds are self-inflicted. And also, kind of corollary to that, the worst wounds are self-inflicted wounds. We damage ourselves in so many ways, um, sometimes without even knowing that. But if we could um, move the other way and uh, pray for rescue when they catch us, life would be good. That's exactly the right attitude, by the way, toward evil. That's practice toward evil. That's kind of, that's perfect, right? And then finally, um, the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours forever. What does this mean? You should be certain that God is listening to you, that these petitions are pleasing to God, and they're heard by him, and he's commanded us to pray, and he's promised to hear us, and that he'll say yes. All the promises of God, say the scriptures, find their yes in Jesus Christ. And so um, this is completely reliable. You can you know, say this and be confident that it'll be heard. Right? How you doing? You doing okay? Mm -hmm. You're so, so quiet. I feel like I should, I should start one of those, I should start like a calm YouTube channel. Just play this stuff over and over again until people fall asleep. That, help me, help me, Vicar. Help me, friend. You're, oh, yeah, I know. Just a little drool right here from where yeah. you were nodding off. I know, it's okay. Now, last thing on prayer. What I don't want to do is give you this notion that, um, well, how do you talk about hard things, right? 
if you say to people, well, this is going to be very difficult, um, that can be a bit defeating, and people can feel judged by that. So uh, this is remedy to that. This is just the opposite. What I don't want to say to you is, um, well, you've certainly been bad at that for a while. What I do want to say to you is, you have this great gift that God has given you. And so many of the troubles that you have could be answered if you just, you know, put the batteries in and turn it to on. It would all be okay. So here, sort of the rescue. Um, as you maybe start to pray or strengthen your prayers a bit. Growing in prayer is not simply acquiring a set of special spiritual skills that operate in one bit of your life. It's about growing into what St. Paul calls the measure and full stature of Christ. It's growing into the kind of humanity that Christ shows us. Growing in prayer, in other words, is growing in Christian humanity. It seems that all Christian reflection, all theology worth the name, began as people realized that because of Jesus Christ, they could talk to God in a different way. It was the new experience of Christian prayer that got people thinking. If Jesus somehow makes it possible for us to talk to God in a new way, then surely there are things we ought to be saying and believing about Jesus. And so the great exploratory business of theology began to unfold. The newness of prayer is expressed most vividly by St. Paul in Romans 8 and Galatians 4. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. The new way we talk to God is as Father, and that is the work of the Spirit of Jesus. And of course, it is the prayer recorded of Jesus himself the night before his death. So for the Christian to pray before all else is to let Jesus' prayer happen in you. And the prayer that Jesus himself taught his disciples expresses this very clearly. Our Father, we begin by expressing the confidence that we stand where Jesus stands and can say what Jesus says. I mean, that's a remarkable statement, right? We stand where Jesus stands. We can say what Jesus says. Some kinds of instruction in prayer used to say at the beginning, put yourself in the presence of God, which is, I've always found quite, you know, there's a whole strain of reading the Bible. Put yourself into the story, the Ignatian way. It's a, it's a, it takes a diligence. But I often wonder whether it would be more helpful to say, put yourself in the place of Jesus. It sounds appallingly ambiguous, even presumptuous. But that is actually what the New Testament suggests we do. Jesus speaks to God for us, but we speak to God in him. You may say what you want, but he is speaking to the Father, gazing into the depths of the Father's love. This is what I meant when I said, you know, Jesus is a spell checker on your prayers. You can bumble along and say whatever you want, and Jesus cleans it up and presents it to the Father as the best prayer that was ever prayed. You may say what you want, but he is speaking to the Father, gazing into the depths of the Father's love. And as you understand Jesus better, as you grow up a little in your faith, then what you want to say gradually shifts a bit more into alignment with what he's always saying to the Father. So you get bent into the image of Jesus, right? You get bent into the sign of the cross in his eternal love, for the eternal love out of which his own life streams. That, in a nutshell, is prayer.
letting Jesus pray in you and beginning that thankfully and often very tough process by which our selfish thoughts and ideals and hopes are gradually aligned with his eternal action. This is a, it's not I want a pony, it's I want a pony, it's I want to be like Jesus. Just as in his own earthly life, his human fears and hopes and desires and emotions are put into the context of his love for the Father, woven into the eternal relationship with the Father, even in the moment of supreme pain and mental agony that he endures the night before his death. So it should not surprise us that Jesus begins his instructions on prayer by telling us to affirm that we stand where he stands, our Father. Everything that follows is bathed in the light of that relationship. This is for you too. If you are convinced that the person you're with loves you, everything else will sort out. The Lord's Prayer begins with a vision of the world that is transparent to God. So, you know, God sees it all, right? May your kingdom come, your will be done. May what you, God, want shine through in this world and shape the kind of world it's going to be. And only when we have begun with that affirmation, that imagining of the world in which God's light is coming through, do we start asking for what we need. And what do we need? We need sustenance, mercy, protection, daily bread, forgiveness. We need to be steered away from the tests that are not strong enough for, enough for us to bear. I mean, that's just, you can't, you can hardly, I mean, this is such a genius, you can hardly, you hardly know what to do with that. But what I hope you'll do with it is pray. Um, if you can sort of kind of, or just a little discipline, friends. If you could, you know, in the morning when you wake up, the catechism, make the sign of the cross and say it. When you go to bed, you know, there's, a, there's two prayers, morning and evening, Luther's prayers and the catechism. But um, we rob ourselves of comfort and especially of benefit for our spouse, our children, our family, the people around us, and frankly, for all the people who are evil around us. We just, you know, we rob ourselves of, it's so easy to make things better. How's that? If we'd only have a go. So, questions about any of that? Or I'm actually going to go to the next thing, but I'll talk about it all day long if you want. No? You okay? So, by now I've exposed my hand, right? Um, you remember that way back, I think first day or maybe second, I sort of said to you, we don't need any more members. That, in fact, is still true. But, of course, we'd love to have you come along and be disciples. And I read to you this little bit from Acts 2. Um, Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended uh, into heaven. Pentecost happens 10 days later. So, like 40 days of Lent, there's 40 days between um, the resurrection and the ascension, and then 10 more days, another holy number. And then they... Peter has Pentecost, and thousands of people get baptized, and then what? And then Acts. Um, it's the basic disciplined life of being Christian. Acts 2, 40, 42, or 41, hold on. So, 41. So, those who received Peter's words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then almost a throwaway. But this describes the entire church in a verse or two. So, 
Christ, and then Christ preached. So Christ, Scripture, Christ preached. You know, it gets written down eventually. So Christ, Scripture, and they devoted, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So Christ, Scripture, the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, the community. But this is a technical word for the Lord's Supper. Koinonia is the word for the Lord's Supper, right? It does mean a gathering. It means also to share something like a meal, but it technically means to the Lord's Supper. So Christ, Scripture, the breaking of the bread into prayers, Christ, Scripture, prayer, the liturgy slash Eucharist, because they continued to go up to the temple until the Jews kicked them out. So while everything was sort of ambiguous, they would go morning and evening for prayers. Eventually the tensions ran too hot and out they went. But it was Christ, Scripture, prayer, the liturgy, and the Eucharist. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Remarkable stuff. So people began to watch them and say, this is very strange what's happening here. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So Christ, Scripture, prayer, the liturgy slash Eucharist, or the Eucharist surrounded by the liturgy, and then tithing and alms, right? So this became a basic thing where they um, contributed for the life of the people. But startlingly, what was so interesting about the Christians, people observed, were they were kind to pe people outside their tribe. Couldn't be more countercultural. They were kind not only to their people, but they gave food, they gave healing, they gave prayers, they gave money to people outside their tribe. People were completely startled by this. And they believed and were together, they had everything in common, and they sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts. Generosity, right? Hospitality, living from abundance and not from scarcity. So Christ, scripture, prayer, liturgy, Eucharist, tithing and alms, mercy. People looked at them and said, look at how these people live, which then gave this beautiful witness to Christ, praising God and having favor with the people. People liked them. They just killed Jesus and now people like them again. How did, how did people come to favor them again? Because they were kind, because they said prayers, because they were merciful, because they were loved, because they weren't tribal, because they counted people same, same. And the Lord added to their number day by day. So you get this witness and things grow. People look and say, I want to be part of this. Churches spend gazillions of dollars on trying to figure out how to get people through the door. The way to get people through the door is to be kind to them, right? So this double thing, Vicar, can you help me? So this double thing of um, living in mercy and thanksgiving. I don't know, Vicar, what if you were picking, if you're on the street and they said, which one was the card? Is it under this one? Or what would you say? I don't know what you might say, Vicar. Let's, um, let's try that first. Let's talk about mercy first and then we'll come back. So I need one, yeah. So what's so strange is almost in no corner of the world right now, mercy is quite out of style. Forgiveness is a way of weakness. Loving your enemy is um, frowned upon. And people should pay for even 
the smallest crimes to the last drop. Uh, right now, Christianity couldn't be more out of style, and yet what will happen? So je predict, I'll be dead by the time this happens. But if the world doesn't end, the pendulum will swing back in this way. It'll be like at the end of the Hundred Years' War when they woke up and there was nobody left to fight. Everybody had been killed. It had been a hundred years. Right? And they finally said, well, I guess then we ought to try something else. There'll be a point where people will try something else. You and I might live to see it. It might be hell before that happens. But in any case, if you could persevere in the way of mercy, that would be great. And you can see this is from, so St. Leo the Great, you know, fourth century pope, as I recall, um, if I have my dates right. Even in the face of persecution, you know, Christians being, um, you know, taken to the arena, skinned alive, you know, cooked alive, all the things that were done to them. Let works of mercy, therefore, be our delight. Or if you're a parent, you can translate it this way. I don't care what your little hoodlum friends do. We're going to live by mercy. And let us be filled with the kinds of food that feed us for eternity, the Eucharist. The word of God, bread from heaven. Let us rejoice in the replenishment of the poor. See generosity, that's Acts 2. You see poor people? You give alms. Simple, simple. And whom, the, whom our bounty is satisfied. So our job is to satisfy the poor. This is not a political statement. I'm just telling you what the church says. So this is very important for you. You should never know how I vote or whom I support about anything because politics is strategy. And you can have all kinds of different politics. The world runs all different ways and runs well or has run well in many places. Politics is strategy. You're free to figure it out for yourself as long as you figure it out in the way of Jesus. Politics is strategy, theology is principle. So to say something like, you should be generous to the poor, is not a political statement. And I frankly don't care that, you know, Marxism is, ha is having its day and everything is a political statement. Yeah, I'm unconvinced, okay? Primarily because of Jesus. But politics is strategy, but theology is principle. Part of the principle is to care for the poor, right? You have to figure out what that means. But at least for you, care for the poor. Let us delight in clothing those whose nakedness we have covered with needful raiment. Let our humanness be felt by the sick in their illnesses, by the weakly in their infirmities, by the exiles in their hardships. Jesus, when did we see you sick, Lord? Matthew 26. When did we see you sick and help you? When did we see you in prison and visit you? Jesus. You did it to the least of these. You did it to me. That's not politics. That's Jesus talking. Right? You can work it out in different ways. You can work it out as a Republican, a Democrat, an Independent, a Socialist. You can work it out in a ton of ways. I actually don't care how you work it out. You know, all of them are fraught with one thing and another. Do what you want. Move where you want. The church doesn't tell you that. What the church does tell you is what Jesus said. By exiles and their hardships, by the orphans in their destitution, and by solitary wid widows in their sadness, in the helping of whom there is no one that cannot carry out some small amount of benevolence. So do not say to me, I am too poor. To just don't, don't even say it. 
Remember, I think in Les Mis, there's a priest who, as I recall, um, lives on 10% and gives 90% away instead of the other way around. Remember, he's being robbed, and the guy takes one candlestick and he gives him two. You remember this? For no one's income is small whose heart is big, and the measure of one's mercy and goodness does not depend on the size of one's means. Wealth of good will is never rightly lacking. You can always love. Even in a slender purse, doubtless the expenditure of the rich is greater than those of the poor, smaller, but there is no difference in the fruit of those works where the purpose of the workers is the same. So you're generous according to what the Lord has trusted you with. There you go. Vic, help me. Time grows short. No, you're perfect, Vic. You might be a Vic, but you're our Vic. So the whole point is to try to get you to live from the gifts that God has given you. But, you know, one of the early church fathers says, we're not reservoirs, we're rivers. So the Lord doesn't give you gifts so that you can sort of hold them to yourself, right? We're not reservoirs, we're rivers. The Lord gives us gifts and we give those gifts on. But to do that, you have to realize that Jesus is the source that you don't belong to yourself. As Paul says, you're not your own, you were bought with a price, glorify God in your body. And this is the hardest thing for us because we're, especially as Americans, you know, we're independent and we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we, we're self-made and blah, blah, which, you know, you can argue about how much of that is true and this and that. That's not such a, that's not as interesting as this, which is to say, none of us own anything. None of us generated anything. We're nothing but given to Jesus loves me and gives me everything. And when you finally realize that, you can live then Eucharistically. The word Eucharist literally means thanksgiving. So tomorrow we celebrate the holy thanksgiving. A Eucharistic life is one lived in gratitude. See, so Jesus gives me gifts, and I'm very thankful for that. And because I know how wonderful this makes my life, I give the gifts unto other people, you know, outside my tribe. You know, things, food, healing, wonders, mercy, witness. The story, which is also our story, of the two friends walking to Emmaus, has shown that gratitude is not an obvious attitude toward life. It's not obvious. Gratitude needs to be discovered, and frankly, that's what we're trying to do here. All of us are trying to rediscover gratitude and to be lived with great inner attentiveness. It's Lent. Pay attention. Our losses, our experiences of rejection and abandonment, and our many moments of disillusionment keep pulling us into anger, bitterness, and resentment. So our world today. When we simply let the facts speak, there will always be enough facts to convince us that life in the end leads to nothing, and that every attempt to beat that fate is only a sign of profound naivete. This is the world in which I live today. But Jesus gave us the Eucharist to enable to choose gratitude. It is a choice we ourselves have to make. Nobody can make it for us. But the Eucharist prompts us to cry out to God for mercy. 
to listen to the words of Jesus, to invite him into our home, to enter into communion with him and proclaim good news to the world. It opens the possibility of gradually letting go of our many resentments and choosing to be grateful. So just, just think of this now. It's the things that you resent that keep you from gratitude. It's the people that you hate that keep you from praying. If you don't understand that Jesus is the source of all things, you can never be generous. The Eucharistic celebration keeps inviting us to that attitude. In our daily lives, we have countless opportunities to be grateful instead of resentful. At first, we might not recognize these opportunities. Before we fully realize, we've already said, this is too much for me. So just hear your own voice. Can you hear your own voice saying this? This is too much for me. I have no choice but to be angry and to let my anger show. Life isn't fair, and I can't act as if it is. And frankly, I mean, there's a lot of friends even and family who think you're absolutely out of your mind to, you know, pursue Jesus rigorously. Fine, but I can show you a different thing, and I can actually show you the most wonderful people who do it, and I can show you how their lives turn out. I can also show you how their lives turn out when people don't embrace this. However, there's always the voice that says ever and again, it suggests that we are blinded by our own understanding and pull ourselves and each other into a hole. It is the voice that calls us foolish, the voice that asks us to have a completely new look at our lives. Metanoia, the word for repentance, is the word to turn around and have a good look at things from a different direction. Metanoia, turn around, swim upstream. A look not from below, where we can count our losses, which we mostly do, we see our failures and count our losses, but from above, where God offers us his glory. Eucharist, thanksgiving in the end, comes from above. It is the gift that we cannot fabricate for ourselves. It is to be received. It is freely offered and asked to be freely received. That is where the choice is. We can choose to let the stranger continue his journey and remain a stranger, Jesus, of course, on the road to Emmaus. We can continue to let Jesus be a stranger, but we can also invite him into our inner lives. This is Lent. Let him touch every part of our being and then transform our resentments into gratitude. See, the point of this whole thing is to try to turn you into a different kind of person, a more wonderful person, gracious, happier. Fulfilled, joyful, satisfied. All the things that the church promises, all the things that Jesus is. We don't have to do this. In fact, most people don't. But as often as we make that choice, everything, even the most trivial things, become new. Our little lives become great, part of the mysterious work of God's salvation. Once that happens, Nothing is accidental, casual, or futile anymore. Even the most insignificant event speaks the language of faith, hope, and above all, love. That's the Eucharistic life, the life in which everything becomes a way of saying thank you to him who joined us on the road. So there you go. That's the point, the aim, 
and you know, the, the hope, of course. All right, how you doing? I mean, that's all my cards on the table. So um, if that's what you want, you really should think about joining. And if that's what you don't want, I'll help you find, and I mean this seriously, I'll help you find another place. But there is nothing like this. And if you can um, find a group of people who also think there's nothing like this, you've died and gone to heaven on earth. Your kids have a place to grow up that way. You have a place to grow old that way. You have a place to struggle through with people who are your peers. And you can have respect and love up the scale and down the scale. And then everybody is warm and safe and dry, right? Generous and merciful and a good witness at the Eucharist and saying their prayers and reading scripture and imitating Christ. This is, you know, this is just basic stuff. The church, unlike any other institution, has lasted for the last 2,000 years. You'd be pressed to name anything else that has lasted, especially under the persecution and rigor that the church has faced with a similar outcome, which is the outcome of love and generosity and mercy and inclusion and reaching beyond the tribe and turning the other cheek and praying for your enemies and, you know, walking across the road to see, you know, why that guy got beat up on the way down to Jericho. All right, there it is. Um, so if you can give me a couple more weeks, I'll make it even more difficult for you. And then uh, we can just kind of see where things go. Just any questions about any of that? Of course, I want you to be persuaded, but uh, I'm well past the age of where I know I can't make anybody do anything. It's roughly the age of your children. <laughs> when people, children could even be the age of your child. They grow, they grow strong fast. And Jesus thinks about us in exactly the same way. All right, let's pray. Um, come back. Give me three more weeks and we'll be all done. So please try to come the next three weeks. I know you're busy. You know, I know you have a lot going on, but you know, see if you can hang in there for just three more weeks. And then uh, new members will come in at Easter Vigil. Doubtless you will say to me, we travel at Easter, to which I'll say to you, Jesus knows where you are. It'll be okay. So don't let that. And the vicar is going to find the last best form you know, and even put it online. He says reluctantly. He's a digital native. He can do anything. He scheduled his tattoo. My wife told me you scheduled your tattoo. Yes. We have a new scholarship tattoo program for the vicars of St. John. It's beautiful. It's going to be great. You go for the big one? Miguel got it. Do you remember Miguel's tattoo? Yeah, that's a St. John gift. Of course. The vic. So, little one. You're a modest man. That's good. It's the only place I would ever get one. I don't want to know what place you're actually getting. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, no. just, we should just pray. I mean, there's nothing else we can do. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, love you. Thanks.